Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash, making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it, cause we'll be gone. Over that next horizon. We ain't got no Welcome to Escaping Society, episode 22, Foraging, Hobo's Garden of Eden. I'm Teresa. I'm Gumby. And this episode will talk about some plants that we like to forage for and include in our diet, and talk about some of the philosophy behind foraging, and just some of the um, practical things that we do as we forage. The first time that I had experienced foraging was on a plant hike in the mountains of North Carolina, and I had paid for this plant hike. Um, This was several years ago, and when I got back to where I live at or where I lived at in North Carolina in the, the Piedmont area, central North Carolina, I was kind of disheartened because... I had been on this magical three-day plant hike, and we had met all these different plants, and I was busily writing down all the names of them and what they're used for and everything, and then I get back, and I'm like, I don't see any of this stuff. So I was at first disheartened, but I'm here to tell you that um, there's something. There's something around you, and for me, I started looking around in my yard, which wasn't very well-kept, and... I found dandelion. I was like, okay, okay, I think I can do this. I, I'm starting to to have hope. And uh, there was a redbud tree that once it was springtime and the flowers came out, I identified it with the flowers. And you can eat the flowers, so that was fun. And I started to notice some other things in the yard. So uh, it, it started to give me hope that I don't have to go all the way up to a, a mountainous, pristine region to find things that I can eat. <clears throat> yeah, that, uh, like being overwhelmed with all the plants. I've heard that called the wall of green. I think John Young with Wilderness Awareness School calls it that. You know, it just looks like this big uniform wall of green that's kind of imposing. And uh, then it's helpful to get to know like the individuals, the friends among the the plant kingdom. Um, So yeah, the, the earth as, you know, one of our oldest stories that is remembered in our culture is that of the Garden of Eden, this origin myth of uh, Christianity, which is kind of like you know, the myth of our, our culture at large now. Um, and it's this garden where food is just provided. You don't have to do anything. Um, there's no sweating by the toil of your, your brow. There's no uh, having to dig in the earth. It's just God gave you all this food, and there's this huge garden. You just walk around, and you live, and you enjoy, and you eat. And that's a very interesting story, the Garden of Eden. Um Daniel Quinn talks about that in Ishmael, um, a really interesting take on that. And, uh, 
he discusses how indigenous tribes, you know, they still lived in the Garden of Eden. Um, food was just out there. It's not something you had to buy. It's not even something you necessarily had to work for, even though some work is, is involved. But it's was usually not considered like a subjugating, oppressive kind of work. It's just what you had to do to go get the food, you know, like walking to your fridge or um, taking a walk in this beautiful field and just picking up the, the plants that you know are there that are growing for you. You didn't have to force their hand. Um, and I really like that idea and thinking about the Garden of Eden and and Quinn discusses like he believes the Garden of Eden story, the Adam and Eve story, was a, a tale told by the indigenous cultures around the origins of the culture that became us, the first people that started what he calls totalitarian agriculture, um, really trying to force certain plants instead of just going and having a more easy, um, what would you call that, affluent life. <coughs> so it was kind of their tale to explain why we were acting so strangely. They, they thought we must be cursed. We, we weren't listening to God anymore. We wanted more. We were greedy. Um, we took from the God's own Garden of Eden and decided we knew better, that, that apple um, of knowledge. And for that, we were cursed. And that's how they explained to each other why this one tribe is working their asses off to make so <laughs> much food. To them, it didn't seem like anything except a curse because they lived in the Garden of Eden. Um, Henry David Thoreau also, there's this, oh man, this book, I can't, I should have looked up what the title was. I thought I'd remember it, but it's not a book you hear about much. It's got something to do with like seeds and berries or something like that. But in that, I remember reading, um, where he'd talk about, he'd go out and pick blackberries and, you know, some of the plants outside. And he talked about the joy of not forcing nature's hand. He really recognize that there was a difference between growing a garden, which can be satisfying. I'm not trying to knock on gardens uh, right now, but Thoreau really appreciated this whole, like, wow, look what's just offered. I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to, like, force the soil. I didn't have to force the plant. I didn't have to force anything. There's just this gift, these beautiful blackberries in front of me. Um, yeah, I guess that was uh, kind of interesting to point out here since we've been through the desert of uh, California and Nevada and um, we're in Arizona now and how <laughs> just in the most arid places I understand that some things grow in that type of climate but we're having to make more dams and get water from other places just to be able to grow all this food in the desert mm -hmm. and I really like the <laughs> philosophy um, that Thoreau, Thoreau was representing, that you're still in the Garden of Eden. It's how you look at it. You might be blind to the Garden of Eden, but it doesn't have to be that way. You can change. Um, I like the whole philosophy of foraging. Foraging, just seeing what's offered, seeing what nature is already providing you and, and offering you. It's a very different philosophy than agriculture. Even if you're, whether you're working a huge farm with uh, modern equipment and pesticides and chemicals, or whether you're a small organic gardener, there's still a philosophy there of a greater impact, a greater need or desire that you want a certain kind of food. And it's much different than the forager, the forager who walks out and sees what's there. And instead of trying to change the land to suit themselves, they change their appreciation to enjoy what's already there. And if it's blackberry season, you enjoy blackberries. When mm -hmm. the blackberries pass, there's something else there to be enjoyed. Maybe the hickory, hickory nuts. 
Um, you know, and then deep in the winter, maybe you're lucky enough to, to enjoy pine needle tea or be able to dig up a, a putty root. Well, I don't know if I'd call that lucky. It's not my favorite plant, but, <laughs> but I think you get the point. There's a philosophy behind that. It's a really, uh, liberating philosophy to be able to go out and forage that the food is already growing there. This is the knowledge shared of all the animals. The agriculture is unique to us. They know they can just go out and, like the Bible says, you know, since we're talking about the Garden of Eden in St. Matthew chapter 6, worry not for the morrow. Don't gather food into barns or, or you know, all this stuff we do to, to try to protect ourselves against the morrow. And it says, you know, behold the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. They don't reap or or, or sow. Um, <laughs> I think I'm using the wrong words here. But basically they know that they're in the hands of God. God takes care of them. So why would we be so afraid? Um so, yeah, I really like that part of the philosophy of foraging. One of the things that really helped me when I started foraging, and Peterson's Field Guide to Edible Plants talks about this, um, just the broad strokes of seasonality. For instance, in the spring, you have a lot of fresh green plants popping up. So spring is a good time to start looking for salads. And by the way, all these plants popping up, almost all of them are diuretics. They help flush out your system after a stagnant winter of eating like fatty foods and things that tend to kind of slow you down and put on the bulk, which you need for winter. But you don't want that all year round. So it tends to be a good time to do your spring cleaning to flush out your system. Interestingly, um, I've heard in... Um, certain native literature that they believe there's a wind. And I noticed this wind before I even read this. I was so excited when I got the confirmation of reading this that other people have noticed it too. A wind blows in the spring and it gives you a really bad feeling. I've noticed in the springtime, sometimes I'll get bleakly depressed when the weather's getting beautiful and I can't understand it. I'll get angry. I'll get feeling bad. And um, certain indigenous people would notice this wind and they, they thought it was a type of spring cleaning. It would bring up all the stuff that, that hmm. started stagnating in you over the winter and bring it to the surface so you can expunge it, you can deal with it, and it comes out. And it doesn't feel good when it's coming out, but it's your spring cleaning. Just like spring cleaning might feel like a, a really bad chore, but afterwards, wow, then you've got the windows open, you know you're ready for a new year, a new year of growth. Hmm. So that salad, to me, that's part of that same energy, the energy of the spring, these uh, fresh, new, green things that are really tender, and you can throw them together so easily. They're just really offering themselves to a fresh salad. Um, I prefer to eat salads in the spring. I don't want to cook it. I don't want to do anything. It's so easy to gather. It's just natural. It, it's fresh. It's it's good. Good time for that. And then we move on to the summer. The plants are getting older. Um, you can still find stuff for a salad, but they're starting to get tougher. They're getting woodier. They're older. Um, but the fruit's starting to come out. So now you got all these fruits, these blackberries, and all the members of that family, um, and the different, like, cherries, uh, strawberries, if you're lucky to be in an area that has strawberries, um, a lot of berries. This is when the, the bears start looking for the berries, and the animals, the, the birds are picking all the berries. So this is a great time to really, like, put your attention on the berries. And then when the berries start passing away, you go to the autumn, and you've got a lot of nuts. And this is a really, like, one of the things that fascinates me about the seasonality is you get exactly what you need at the right time of year. It reminds me that I'm not just some creature that, you know, sprung up somewhere in the universe and happened to find themselves on this planet. I am designed for this planet. When I need nuts, when I need protein, when I need the things that nuts provide, when it's getting to be winter and I need to put on that bulk, that's nut season right there in the autumn. It's no accident it happens in the autumn. 
And, you know, it doesn't really matter which way you look at it. Did the trees start growing the nuts to, to take care of the animals? Or did the animals, like, evolve to need the nuts when the nuts were um, the, the time of year when it was nut season? Either way, it's a beautiful thing. It's a reciprocal conversation, a relationship that we take care of each other. So, yeah, acorns, uh, beech nuts, um, hickory nuts, you know, a lot of the nuts coming out in the autumn. And this is when you need that protein, that extra energy to get ready for the winter. And then the winter is a scarce time. It's hard to be a forager in the winter, but not impossible. Roots. If you're in a place that you're not buried under snow, you can look for roots. Um, This is not my favorite way to eat forageable plants, but there are good carbohydrates in there, good things to mix with other stuff. Um, so yeah, the energy of the plant, the top of the plant dies, goes dormant, the energy's in the roots, and that's when you start eating the roots, so, you know, it it helps me as a forager to think about seasons. Did you have anything to add to that? Um, oh, I thought it was really cool, this isn't exactly about foraging, but it does sort of have something to do with it, um, the mast years of nuts, and how, how interesting it is that trees... They, they know exactly what they're doing and when to produce uh, a lot of nuts for that year. And then, like, the populations of the squirrels or whatever goes up with the mast year. But then it's balanced out by other years. And mast years being the years where there's a lot more of the, the nuts. Mm, yeah. And, <clears throat> yeah, you'll notice a big difference when you start foraging, like, especially the time of year when you're gathering the nuts off in the autumn um, between a mast year. You'll go for a couple of years and might not find much of anything. Like, uh, this definitely happened to me when I learned about beech nuts. And I tend to learn about a plant, which makes sense when you think about it, during a mast year, because that's when you're seeing the nuts everywhere, and you might get curious and ask somebody or look it up in a field guide. So that first year, you think, wow, I've got this awesome food. I'm going to do this every year. And then the next year (laughs) comes around, and you look around, and you don't find anything. And you're like, what the hell happened? Too snow. Yep, the mast year. And trees have evolved to do this to overwhelm the things that eat the nuts. So the pop, like squirrels, for instance, they eat the acorns. You know, the the squirrel population reaches a certain equilibrium, a certain balance in relationship to the acorns. If there's more food provided, slowly the squirrel population will increase because there's more food that turns into more squirrel flesh, etc. So for one year, this, this oak tree is saving up its energy, saving up its energy, and boom! Just acorns everywhere. They overwhelm the squirrels, and those are the acorns that um, get planted, get get turned into oak trees. Because even the squirrels trying to handle all these acorns, they're big planters of uh, oak trees. <laughs> they're putting them in the ground. If they got too many acorns, they forget about them. Forgetful squirrels are great foresters. They're one of the big <laughs> things that help shape our forest. Uh, forgetful squirrels. So thank you, squirrels. Um, another person I want to bring up is Yule Gibbons. He In our culture, you know, foraging, of course, is an ancient practice. It goes way before agriculture. But it kind of got lost as our attention in the 1900s turned into industrialization. Um, There were still gardenings, you know, the Victory Gardens of World War II. There were still, you know, but more and more we were getting pushed, pished. (laughs) We're getting pished into consumerism. We all pished. Go to the grocery store, buy the packaged food. um, Go to the new fast food places that are coming. You know, food should be fast and... Um, these old skills of foraging got kind of, like, put in a bad light. You know, it wasn't popular anymore. It was something like, why the hell would you do that? You can go and get this big, juicy tomato at the grocery store. Yule Gibbons, I guess this was maybe the 70s, 
he made it popular again. He was one of the big people that started uh, talking about foraging, wrote the book Stalking the Wild Asparagus, Stalking the Blue-Eyed Scallop. But he was a really interesting guy. When he was a little kid, his family was really poor, and his dad went off to look for work. And his family was basically starving to death. So Yul Gibbons just um, grabbed his books, grabbed any resources he could, and started learning about plants. And he'd take off and go to the mountains for a week or so and come back with just, like, bags of roots and plants. And he helped keep his family alive when he was a little kid. And that started him on the path of foraging. Mm. And when I was uh, I was reading about the Great Depression, even though there were actually surpluses of a lot of supplies, including food, people were starving because, of course, our culture, we want to put food under lock and key. And if nobody's able to buy it, well, it's just sitting there rotting until the economy gets better. Um, but people during the Great Depression, they returned to foraging because that helped to supplement their diets. And it also helped uh, with with medicines when they were sick from malnutrition and and not having enough food. Mm-hmm. And I, when, I was aware of the Yul Gibbons uh, story for quite some time because I'm familiar with this book, Stalking the Wild Asparagus. But kind of a missing piece for that was how did he how did he learn foraging? I mean, I can go to the the store now and get all kinds of field guides, but it didn't seem like it was necessarily like that back then, especially for some you know poor family out in the middle of nowhere. And then I started reading about the hobos, and um, basically it sounds like Yul Gibbons' family was either um, hobos themselves or right on the edge, you know, hmm. like part-time hobos. So this was one of the facets of our culture that held on to this knowledge. It was still valuable to be a forager when everybody else was turning away from this for the people that were basically traveling the land that would wind up in any place, you know, might not have money, couldn't afford all the, the new products that are being sold to us. So they still needed that autonomy, that independence. They foraged. I imagine that helped influence Yul Gibbons, who later went on to be a hobo himself for a while, jumped trains, and then he was a beach bum for a while. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, apparently there was this... I actually looked it up a while back because I kept hearing, oh, yeah, here's that guy in that uh, Grape Nuts commercial, right? And I was like, well, I guess. And then I looked it up, and, you know, there's old Yul Gibbons with his big shock of wild hair on top, uh, white hair. And he says, did you know you could eat a pine tree? It's a really funny commercial. But, uh, yeah, he would throw these parties, these foraging parties, invite people over and just, you know, show them all the stuff they could eat. And um, apparently he really wanted to be a science fiction writer. And I heard that when he died, he still thought of himself as a failure because he didn't become a science fiction writer. Even though all of us, like so many of us, can thank Yul Gibbons for helping inspiring our own foraging. Mm-hmm. Um. The Forager's Harvest, speaking of books that are helpful, um, one I want to tip my hat to right now is The Forager's Harvest by Samuel Thayer, T-H-A-Y-E-R. That's not necessarily where I'd start, although it's not a bad place to start either, but it's got a lot of great photographs and it's got a lot of knowledge about foraging that I don't find in other field guides. So, you know, get your Peterson Field Guide to Wildflowers, start learning your plants, edible, non-edible, just basically your plants, Botany in a Day by Tom Elpel. I always want to plug that one when I'm talking about plants because that will speed up your learning so much. Mm. He makes it easy to learn about families, and there are a lot of general trends in families. Of course, you want to know a species before you start sticking stuff in your mouth and eating it. But you can make pretty good guesses when you start getting familiar with the families of plants. And it's fascinating when you learn families because you can travel anywhere and recognize, like, oh, that looks like it's in the mustard family. So you mm-hmm. can make a pretty educated guess about you know, what it could do for you medicinally and nutritionally. Um, but yeah, to add to those lists, those, 
those plants, and of course, Peterson Field Guide to Edible Plants, which I already mentioned, Samuel Thera Forager's Harvest, or, yeah, Forager's Harvest, and he's got a sequel. Um, I can't remember the name of the sequel book, but if you find Forager's Harvest, Samuel Thayer, you'll probably easily find his next book, but they definitely complement a Forager's collection of uh, research material. Um, and yeah, once again, this knowledge used to be commonplace. Like during the Civil War, this was the beginning of kind of the, the hobo we're familiar with. Um, the Civil War, the soldiers were out there fighting, and the government was making a lot of promises to get people to go and murder and kill and possibly die for them, you know, as usual, where the politicians are sitting back, making the money, pulling the strings, and all the poor people are desperately going to do whatever it takes to make a livelihood. And then with all the promises of what they'll gain from going to fight in this war, they're not getting taken care of. So foraging was a big part of the Civil War. Um, you know, these soldiers are out there. They're not getting enough food. They would go and find plants that are growing on the landscape, and this knowledge was really valuable to them. They were away from their farms. Think about being back home at that time. you got a farm. Maybe you don't need to know much about the wild plants when you're on your farm. But thank God that knowledge was, wasn't completely erased at the time because now they're not on their farm anymore. They're going out and supplementing their diet with wild plants. The Civil War ends... And think about how we're dealing with PTSD with our soldiers now. You know, people come back from Afghanistan, Iraq, and they have a really hard time sometimes adjusting back to civilian life. Now think about the way we fight wars now. We've got these long-range rifles. We've got these, all this equipment that kind of removes you a little more from your, your actions and the consequences of them. It's like a video game. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, a lot of, like, I've seen footage of people in tanks now that put in earbuds and listen to heavy metal. And, like, you know, to them, it's just the same as playing a damn video game. It's just a blip on a screen. But it wasn't like that in the Civil War. If people are getting PTSD now, think about back then when you're fighting people that talk your language, that look like you. You know, it's not so easy to objectify them, to imagine that they are subhuman, which is one of the the things, the, the propaganda techniques that make wars possible. First, you have to find some way not to see the humanity in your opponent. It was hard in the Civil War. These were your neighbors, like brother against brother. Um, and it was up close and bloody. Like, you were right there. You know, there were some cannons being fired, but when you charged into battle... There wasn't the long-range war that we have nowadays. It was bloody and personal. Think of the PTSD. Think of these people, like, after this, and this is full swing of the Industrial Revolution. There's this new way of life being pushed on people, which is part of what the, the Civil War was about. Factories are being made. Uh, agriculture is starting to take more of a background. The plantation isn't the way the country's trying to go anymore. The country wants automation. They want these factories. They want machines that can do 10 people's jobs. Um... And with that comes a certain domesticity, a certain settling down, mm -hmm. uh, trading your time for the clock, you know, to go to a job and like serve the machine and maintenance the machine and run the machine and then come home. It was a big shift in life. You're giving up a lot of your freedom and autonomy. And there was a huge rebellion after the Civil War. And these were the hobos. These were the people that started traveling around looking for work and they kept foraging alive. And I would imagine they had something to do with handing it down to Yule Gibbons and of course, Yule Gibbons had a lot to do with dispersing it to the culture at large and bringing it back. Mm -hmm. And I would say I think one of the reasons it's making a comeback is because we're coming to the end of our culture. Our culture is so obviously not serving us anymore. Um, there's always been resistance to the lies we get told by our culture. Anytime something new gets sold to us, 
the majority gobbles it up obediently. But there's always a fringe that says, that doesn't make a lot of damn sense. You know, I, I'm not buying it. I kind of like the way we did things before. And I see a danger in what you're trying to sell us. I feel like the scales are tipping again. And that's one of the reasons why we can do a podcast on foraging. And I know I'm talking to a lot of people who have some knowledge or some interest in foraging. I don't know I could have done this like 50 years ago. Um, I think people would have been like, so you're eating weeds? Wow. You know, <laughs> but we're starting to want that autonomy, that freedom, because we see things collapsing all around us. And the idea of like going to the store, we can see an end to that. We can see how actually fragile that whole system is and destructive, even if it doesn't fall apart. So the idea of going back to that philosophy of like, well, what if we lived more like just accepting what's already offered? Mm-hmm. I think that's got a new attractiveness that's really unique to this this period of time in our culture. Yeah, and once you start learning the plant families and some edible plants, like I said, you know, dandelion, for example, grows a lot of places, you'll start to see them just on the sides of trails, where, wherever you're wandering, and also in your own yard. And I wanted to talk a little bit about our old yard in North Carolina because we didn't really we didn't really keep the yard up. We just kind of let things grow naturally and and Gumby would uh would mow it, but before we would mow, uh we would forage. And so can I see this list for a second? So this is just a list of some of the plants that were growing in our yard. We weren't doing anything and uh I don't know, it just it, it feels really special to share this. So of course we had dandelion, sheep sorrel, sourgrass, wild onions, and you could use all of those in a salad, along with Johnny Jump Ups, violets, chickweed. And then if you're wanting to cook something, we had yellow dock, curly dock, wintercress, and dandelions and wild onions you could also cook up and, and put in something like a stir fry or a soup or stew. And then a pot herb that we had, which requires several boilings of it, is a pokeweed when it's young. And that was just all in our backyard. And there were little places that we would know to go, and sometimes it would it would migrate. And sometimes there would be even bigger families of, like, the Johnny Jump Ups, for example. Yeah, it was really interesting because even though it grew in our yard, each one had its season, too. So it's not like we'd just go out there and everything Teresa just named is out there waiting for us. Yeah. You would kind of, like move on like as one thing's fading something else is coming up which is really a a beautiful dance that we had with our our yard you know our place our knowledge of place Mm -hmm. and a lot of those that I just mentioned not all of them but a lot of those plants we have videos on our YouTube channel of so if you're not sure what it looks like you can check that out yeah and that sacred connection to the land I was alluding to I think that's another really valuable aspect of foraging even if you Say you learn a dandelion, and by the way, uh, don't take for granted that you know what a dandelion is unless you've been foraging for a while. <laughs> there are some lookalikes, but once you learn the field marks, um, which field guides are great for pointing out the, the specific things that make that plant that plant and not another. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's this uh, idea of intelligent design, and I don't like the way it's used um, by Christians often. But there is something to that. I don't really like the way science, like science tries to just devoid all the life and meaning out of things either. My truth is somewhere in between. And uh, I find it interesting sometimes how a plant will have just this one thing 
that it seems like it's almost made to help me know it better, mm -hmm. to make it unique. Um, you know, I'm not trying to start a debate on intelligent design here, but I believe, to me, that that is part of the sacred connection. That's part of the communication between the plants. I think the plants want to help us. They don't want to be abused by us no more than anything else wants to be abused. But uh, there's a place for us out there. And when you start eating the plants, even like a dandelion leaf a day, you start connecting to the land in a different way. Mm -hmm. Even different than gardening. Gardening gets you out there, gets your hands in the dirt, you know. But something that's just growing there all by itself and kind of waving to you in the wind and calls you over and you eat it and it's a, a unique flavor, like dandelion's a good example, you know, that, that bitter leaf that you don't, you don't run into bitter much in our culture. We've uh, veered towards the things that tend to get you addicted, like sweet, uh, that keep you coming back for more. But bitter, that's a big taste to, to grow familiar with again. And um, that connection goes deep and foraging, I think, is crucial. The land is meant to be, I hate the word used, it sounds so uh, domineering, but... Yeah, it's meant to interact with us. It looked like you got something to say. Yeah, I did have something to add to that. I was going to talk about briefly um, how I tried to garden from seeds. And it was really hard, and it's just maybe not the thing for me, at least in that setting. But when I can stoop down or lay down next to uh, a tribe of an edible plant and get to know it and taste it, then that sacred connection to the land grows. And... I didn't feel that with gardening. Like I tried to get excited when the seeds started, you know, sprouting up, but it just, it's different because you're in control of that or, or the illusion of control. But when there's something that's growing wild, you're, and you're, you become a part of that, you're rewilding yourself. Yeah. And it's one thing to talk about sacred connection to the land, but it can be kind of abstract, you know, to say that. Like, you might want to feel it. You might kind of feel it, but you don't know how to go deeper. Um, one of the ways, a practical way that I found back when we had a yard before we moved into our van was I would do this pre-mowing ritual, and I really learned to value this. Um, right before I mowed, I'd go out with some Tupperware containers, and I would gather the stuff that was edible. I remember gathering lots of sheep sorrel. That was something <laughs> that was really strong in our yard, and uh, dandelion... But, chickweed. Mm-hmm. Chickweed. And like I said, it would change depending on the season. Um, but I'd go out there and I would just forage. I would forage hard because I knew that I was about to cut it down. So I'd go out there and I'd forage and then I'd mow the lawn. And that became a really special thing to me, a really uh, helpful way to... Um, God, that's a big rock he's carrying. Our dog keeps carrying rocks out of this lake. Um <laughs> Did you mention we're in Flagstaff, Arizona? I didn't. I didn't. I forgot. Okay, we're in Flagstaff, Arizona, which is one of becoming one of our favorite towns we've been to. And we found a rare thing in Arizona, a lake. Water. So, yeah, we're sitting in a field um, overlooking the lake right now. But anyway, I digress. Um, <laughs> that pre-mowing ritual, like that might be something when you begin to know your plants. And I would really encourage you to learn the plants in your yard. If you're somebody that has any kind of, uh, like, we don't have much... Um, what would I say, a sedentary lifestyle at all right now. But there are benefits to having a sedentary lifestyle, and this is one of them. Get to know the plants in your yard. Go out there, say hello to them, use them. Uh, maybe try some version of this pre-mowing ritual, even if it's just one plant that you go out and you harvest it. Um, 
and you'll find a hundred ways to use it. You don't have to become like, it's not black or white. You're not either not foraging or a hundred percent foraging. You can complement your meals with this stuff. Um, so yeah, give that a try. And as usual, I'm having a brain fart. Forgot what I was going to say to that. <laughs> well, and also I'll just add, if you don't have a yard, maybe you're like in an apartment building and it's just all grass and you can't find anything, maybe a local park, because we also would forage in the parks, even though you might not be like, you're not supposed to, but if you're, and Gumby will talk about this a little bit more later, if you're respectful about it, um, and you're just aware of what you're doing in your surroundings, you can find a lot of uh, beautiful edibles in parks as well. And I talked at length um, during Herbalism Unplugged, especially part two, about how to gather plants. And I've since come across another resource that took everything I was trying to say, said that, and then much more. Mm. And I'm really excited to share this. So I'm an aspiring animist. And what I mean by that is I believe that everything is sentient, is alive, that I'm not superior to any life on this earth, that we're all in this together. We share life. And I believe that these different entities from the trees to the winds to the water speak. I recognize I'm not trying to pretend like I can talk to everything and pretend to be something I'm not. I'm not. I'm part of a culture that has made me deaf, that has deadened these senses. But just the faith that things are speaking opened me up to some miraculous things happening. Um... So I try to take that spirit, and foraging is a great way to practice animism, to remember that these are tribes, these are peoples, and they're alive, and their life is valuable. You're not just taking something that doesn't mean anything when you pick a dandelion or dig up a root. It's a valuable life just like your own. Mm -hmm. um, and foraging is an excellent way to practice this, where it's not just something like that you right on Facebook or something, that you're actually going out and seeing what this feels like, finding where your weaknesses are, finding where you're, where you're deaf, and finding the places that you can really resonate that do speak to you. This resource that I found that I wanted to share was, we found it um, actually on a podcast that came with a video. It was a short video of this woman, Robin Kimmerer, K-I-M-M-E-R-E-R, -E -E of the Potawatomi Nation. Um, this video, I encourage you to look at it, um, and I'll, I'll tell you hopefully how to find it after I, I mention what I'm, I'm talking about here with her, what she calls the honorable harvest, which was taught to her by her people. I can't do this justice. She goes into details that I know I'm going to forget, so whatever I say, please go watch this video. It is worth your time. She says, never take the first one. Now, I never had heard that before, but when she explained it, it makes so much sense. She says when you go out in the woods, you're not just going out there to like, I'm going out there to grab this thing that is there for me. There's an attitude of that. So go out there and don't take the first one you see. Make a practice of that. Yeah, because she said the first one, if you pick it, it might have been the last one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's the practical caretaker um, attitude of that, you know, just the first one might be the last one, but there's also the attitude behind it. You know, the, it slows you down. It's not, it, it, it changes your whole attitude, I think, mm. to not just grab that first one. Like, all right, I'm out here grabbing the first one. Like I'm at the sh uh, grocery store going home. It's not about you as the first thing. Mm -hmm. Next, ask permission. Now, I talked about that with, uh, Herbalism Unplugged, you know, to ask the plant, like, can I take this? And about how we, uh, taught this to the kids and the beautiful things the kids did. But she goes on to say, introduce yourself. I love that. You know, not just ask permission, but like if you're practicing 
relating to the earth, relating to these plants in a more meaningful way, in a way that's actually sustainable. Um, <laughs> you don't just like, can I take this? That's a good start. But what if you actually like go further and say, hi, I, you know, my name is Gumby and I'm out here, you know, I want to, I want to gather some food. Um, may I take this leaf? Um, one of the reasons I'm gathering this food is I want to live a life that's closer to the earth, that's better for your people, that's better for my people. I'm trying to find my way back to a measure of sanity. And uh, I would be really grateful um, to take this leaf. Is it okay? Is this something that you're you're offering me? I really like that. Yeah, just as an example, you know, I'm not, please don't quote me. I probably wouldn't say that again. I'd <laughs> say it differently. Um, but the living conversation. And then she says, listen for the answer. Wow, that was a part that was missing with mine. I do this all the time where I ask a plant, but do I honestly listen? No, I forget that all the time. She says, if the answer is no, you go home. <laughs> because that's not true communication if you're not willing to listen and abide by the response. You're just paying at lip service. Wow, I love that. That blew my mind when she said that because that was hugely missing. That was one of the weaknesses in my animism that I was looking for. Um, you got to be able to face those weaknesses if you want to be strong in something, and that's for all things. So I want to be a strong animist. I want to be a true animist. I want to belong on this planet and not be an enemy of the, the, the planet that has given me everything. Mm -hmm. So i got a lot of work to do, and I want to see those points where I have to work. Take only what you need. You know, that's kind of a common sense that goes with everything else. You know, you, you can't value something if you're just going to take... Um, a whole bunch. And as we were taught, as I mentioned in St. Matthew chapter six, don't gather up into barns, you know, have faith in the morrow, have faith that you will be taken care of like every other animal is. You don't need to take more than you need. That's fear-based. Take what you need. Have faith that something will be around the corner tomorrow. And one day it might not be, but that's another animal's chance to eat. We don't own the earth. We're not the only things gathering food out here. Sometimes we're the food. And that's part of the sacred dance, whether it's beetles, whether it's worms, whether it's a, a bear, you know, that's part of it. That's part of not being on top. Use everything taken. We have sometimes um, completely accidentally, but carelessly, not done this. We've gathered a bunch of plants, like my pre-mowing ritual, and then had it wilt and occasionally had to throw something out. And I always feel really bad about that because I know that I am not doing something sacred. If you're going to pick it, take only what you need and use it. Yeah. Minimize harm. This was interesting. This is another thing I hadn't thought about much. He said, really pay attention. Like the whole process out there, it's not just gathering plants, but even the way you walk. Is this the kind of area that you need big, heavy hiking boots that smash up the soil and the baby plants? Or can you walk gently barefoot here? If you can't walk gently barefoot, can you use maybe a smoother shoe? Can you walk slower? Can you pay more attention to where you walk? Mm -hmm. Instead of a great big shovel that like pierces the earth and digs up a whole big thing when you just need one root, can you use a little digging stick? You know, just looking for the ways that you minimize harm. That's one of the ways that you are respecting the plant as you gather it. And I'm going into such detail about gathering because I think in our consumer culture, it's really easy for us to get caught up in the end product. Like we go to herbal stores and want, you know, the magic pill, the magic medicine that's going to help us. But not as many people bother learning how to gather and prepare their own medicine. And that's a huge part that's missing. That's part of your relationship. You have just sucked the sacredness out of it if you think gathering is something that, you know, you're above or you don't have time for. 
I would say strongly the same thing with, with foraging. Um, you're still relating to these plants, and food and medicine is the same thing. Food is medicine. Be grateful. Um, you know, really take your take the time to realize that it's not, you're not entitled to this plant. You didn't put this plant here. This is something that you're really lucky to have. Um, and just take a moment and pause of like how lucky you are of all the places you could be in this known universe, this empty, cold vacuum we call our universe. Mm-hmm. You're on this planet full of these beautiful plants that you can eat that has a different flavor. Um, this is a really important practice, too, because sometimes what's popping up isn't your favorite thing. And it can be easy to forget to be grateful. But if you're picking it, it's probably because that's the thing being offered right now and you're lucky to have it. It's really good to remember that. Share what you've taken. Uh, This is something I'm not a people person, so I'm not really good at that, but I love how she explains it, you know, to to share. It's it's part of tribe building, which is another thing that is, you know, this is all connected. So be generous. Don't hoard things, because that whole philosophy, that mindset grows into other ways that you abuse the earth. So remember to be generous, Um, like Yul Gibbons with his party. You know, invite your friends over. Invite your community. Find some way to help other people, help other beings. When I say people, I don't necessarily just mean human. And finally, she says, reciprocate the gift. Now, I used to gather tobacco and leaf tobacco at plants when I would gather things, and I found that that didn't speak to me. I found, I felt phony. I felt like I was trying to, what do you call it, when you take a somebody's tradition, appropriate. appropriate something that wasn't mine. It didn't feel right for me. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it if it feels right for you. But she goes on to say there are many ways to reciprocate. But the important thing is to remember that you have taken something and you owe something because you have taken something. She even says, like, with our fertilizer, you know, her, she doesn't actually come out and say, take a shit. But, <laughs> you know, just recognize that you need to give something back. Um, and that can look a lot of different ways. But there's some way that speaks to you that I think is appropriate for you. So please go watch this video. She says so much more. This is only one part where she's talking about the uh, the honorable harvest, Robin Kimmerer, um, and the video specifically that I'm talking about is called Mishkos Kenomagwen. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. The teachings of grass, pioneers. Um, I think you'll be able to find it if you look that up. And I'll try to post it on our Facebook page, mm-hmm. Escaping Society. Now, one of the things that helped me with, I guess this would be take only what you need, um, I learned a long time ago to try to take only one of every three plants. So for every three plants you see, take only one of them. Um, Or five is best. I will try to take one out of five if I see a lot of something. If my need is greater, if I'm in a survival situation, um, and possibly if there's like like a really dense patch of it, I'll take one in three. But basically... The general rule is leave more than you take. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is sloppy foraging. I've heard it's really good to be a sloppy forager. Like when you're gathering seeds, drop seeds. Um, <laughs> you know, like don't try to, it seems like really efficient to, you know, you're trying to use everything you gather. But at the same time, you're balancing um, that with the attitude of generosity, you know, and that also means generosity for the land and the plants um, to get back right then as you're gathering. Mm-hmm. Um, now with that said, when I'm gathering roots, you know, this is a a way I'm trying not to be sloppy. I tend to to clean the roots as I gather them to save myself work later. 
So there's a lot of uh, room for interpretation, I feel like, in there, kind of balancing these different philosophies. But the the underlying philosophy that kind of umbrellas them all is respect. You know, don't hoard. Don't try to, like, own and control. Um, when you're encountering a new plant, even if you know it's edible, if it's your first encounter with it and you don't have experience with it, or if you're sharing it with someone else, I'd always encourage you to test it. Take a little bit, put it in your mouth, taste it, and spit it out. And wait a few minutes. Is it really acrid? Does it, like, crawl down your throat? Like, sometimes things crawl down your throat and they feel like needles. It's really bad. It's, uh, obviously, you don't want more of that plant. It gets really hot, you know, just a reaction that's one way or the other unpleasant. Stop right there. That's not a plant for you. Um, if it seems pleasant, seems like something that might be edible, then maybe take one bite, chew it up, swallow it. Wait an hour or two. You know, do you get stomach cramps or do you, you know, listen to your body? Your body really knows what it wants, what it what it should have. And then after that, if, you know, nothing happens, it seems okay, then it's a good time to make a meal, try a meal out of it. But go slow because even a plant that's edible, your body, you're unique and you have a relationship to this plant. This might not be a plant you're on friendly terms with and that could change. But at this moment... This plant could have a bad reaction for you. I've had this happen. I've taught kids, uh, I think it was sheep sorrel I taught kids. I was a grave digger, and my coworker brought his two nephews in sometimes just to hang out in the cemetery. And I'd have fun, like, walking around, showing them tracks and uh, plants. Got them eating sheep sorrel. They both got diarrhea from it. <laughs> I've never heard anybody having diarrhea from it. But that was their relationship with that plant at that time. Um, ooh, our battery's getting low. So... And safe locations, as we alluded to earlier. Um, hmm? Let me see the list. So, for um, safe locations, just be aware that we are part of a culture that is absolutely stark raving, fucking insane. And because of that, we have chemicals sprayed. We have chemicals sprayed for convenience that every goddamn one of us should know better. You don't spray chemicals on the ground where your children play. You don't spray chemicals on the ground that animals eat from, and those animals in turn sometimes are eaten by us. Sometimes they're just our neighbors. It doesn't matter whether we're eating them or not. They're our freaking neighbors. You don't treat your neighbors like that. You don't spray chemicals and poisons on the ground where your food comes from. The fact that this even needs to be said, the fact that this is still happening, I would be talking about how crazy it was if this was in the past. It baffles me that we all know this is happening. It's so obviously fucking insane and it's still happening. So with that said, you have to be careful where you gather from. If you go to a park, you know, look around, see how manicured it is. Ask somebody, you know, do you guys use Roundup? Do you guys use, you know, any kind of chemical? And be skeptical. I would say avoid any chemical. Sometimes people tell you, oh yeah, I use this, but it's, it's fine. And then you find out like it's fine by FDA standards, but it's still got shit you don't want in your body. Look for places that are safe. This can be, I like looking for rough places, abandoned lots sometimes. Even that can be dangerous depending on what the house had in it and how old it is. Um, we're going to plug in our battery here, so hopefully this won't be too awkward of a transition. Teresa? <laughs> oh yeah, and power line cuts. Be really careful about those. Okay. 
um, your own yard, you know, you know what you're spraying in there, but be careful of like, you know, I, I used to work on a golf course and I refused to spray the chemicals, but other people didn't. So I'd see that being done. Never gather from a golf course, but just be thinking about that. Don't gather near a road. I'd, I've heard, uh, keep a football field's worth of, uh, distance from you in the road. Um, I'll fudge on that a little bit. I think with some stuff, it's the accumulation. So if I see something really awesome beside a road, sometimes I'll, you know, nibble on it just to taste it. I won't gather in bulk near a road. But basically keep in mind, think about what's happening to the land you're gathering from. The plant is not separate from the land. So gather safely. Um, Exotic invasives. This is something that when I started to learn about plants, I took a lot of classes at like botanical gardens and things like that. And uh, botanists, people that know a lot about plants, tend to rail against the exotic invasives. I really hate that philosophy. Um, It's like they treat the exotic invasives like they're bad. These plants evolved to be beneficial to a specific ecosystem and we created an imbalance. It never felt right to me when I was part of a group that would just start tearing up stuff you know, very in, an, in a very unanimistic way. Like, this life is not valuable. Um, we're going to rip it up. We don't like it. It's horrible. Ugh, I hate that stuff. Um, it just, I, I could never get on board with that because if you really hate exotic invasives because they're bad for the landscape, we are the worst exotic invasive on the planet. We are the reason for the other exotic invasives. We created the situation where it's imbalanced. And so... If you're not going out and shooting people and killing people, but you're tearing up these plants, what you're telling me is you believe in class hierarchy, not class hierarchy, species hierarchy. You believe that humans are superior. You are under the delusion of self-importance. And I think that's one of the core things um, that goes beyond our culture. I've heard other cultures, uh, like Don Juan talks about that with Carlos Castaneda, that even before contact with our culture, self-importance was the biggest barrier to become a sorcerer, a man of knowledge. Um, this to me is a wrong footing. Um, there needs to be another way to deal with these exotic invasives. But on the good side, I find that a lot of exotic invasives are very useful. Um, let's see, I think you've got a list. Yeah, silverberries. Let's start there. Russian olive, autumn olive. Um, these are really good. They've got a, a slight astringent taste, makes your mouth pucker a little bit, but I love them. Um, and there's all kinds of, depending on where you gather them from, sometimes they're big and juicy. Um, sometimes they're kind of subtle, but I've heard they actually fight cancer. Um, and a beautiful plant. Again, if you're, you know, hanging around with botanists, they just tear this up. They hate it. Yeah. I know you probably talked about this, but we've been on plant walks where people are removing exotic invasives and I'll just say, I'll hold the bag. And then if it's something edible, I'll just take it home and cook it up. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Japanese honeysuckle. There's another one. You can make tea out of the, uh, the flowers, just put them in a jar. We've done this before, you know, stack it all the way up, fill it with water and let it sit overnight, maybe in the sun if you want it stronger. And it is one of the most refreshing summer drinks. Put it in the fridge. I love drinking it cold. Dandelion one of the most nutritious plants you can forage, um, grows everywhere. People are spraying fucking chemicals on it. Like the, here we go again. You know, there's these stupid little cartoons where like the, the dandelion is choking your, your little pansy. I mean, give me a damn break. But if you don't like the dandelions, if you feel like they're overwhelming your yard, eat them. (laughs) Yeah. Get benefit, like health benefits. And by the way, the caretaking attitude, if there is a plant that's out of balance, you know, that whole, uh, one in five, one in three, I would say if it's an exotic invasive, I feel like I can gather more because 
the reason why it's an exotic invasive is because it tends to really outcompete the native plants. That's why it's an invasive. Exotic, of course, means it's from somewhere else. So you can take much more and it will recover faster. You'll actually help bring balance. Um, but I'd still use all those honorable harvest um, techniques because it's still a valuable life. It's alive. It's yeah. not done anything wrong. Yeah. Get that out of your head. There's nothing wrong with exotic invasives. If you're going to treat them like there's something wrong with them, become a serial killer because <laughs> we're the worst one. You're no better than those plants. Um, let's see. All right, species hierarchy, yeah. Well, good segue here. <laughs> we make a list of topics that we want to cover, and uh, sometimes they really blend together into a nice nice uh, segue. So here's, I'm going to call this section, Why I'm Not a Vegetarian. <laughs> so if you're a vegetarian and you believe in what you're doing, which I find one of the things I do like about vegans and vegetarians is they are very committed to what they're doing and believe in it deeply. Just take what I say and consider it. Don't change if you believe in what you're doing, but don't be offended that this is what I think. Um, I don't believe in species hierarchy. I don't believe that any life is more valuable than another. I don't believe that because animals have faces and looked more like me, that they're more valuable than a plant. I believe in the spirit that moves in all things. And I believe that the same caretaking should be used whether you're eating meat or whether you're eating plants. To me, I've, I've been accused before by a vegan that you can't love animals and eat animals. And to me, that is not um, logical. You can eat animals and not have any regard for them, but it doesn't necessarily mean I don't love animals because I eat them. Because I also love plants. To me, the greater compassion is to see the life in all things, even the things that don't have cuddly little faces. So when I, I gather a dandelion, um, particularly when you're digging up a root, you know, I've heard the, the argument made that uh, the <laughs> argument made that if you take the leaves, it can recover, whereas if you kill an animal, the animal is dead. Um, but of course, that argument doesn't hold for rooted plants, like mm -hmm. if you're eating potatoes, or if you're eating carrots. So to me, it's the same thing, no matter whether you're a meat eater or not. And I believe that if you're a vegan, for one thing, I've done a lot of survival trips and I've yet to see anybody be able to maintain uh, a vegan lifestyle beyond being reliant on industrial civilization. So if we're turning away from this madness, I think we need to incorporate some measure of uh, meat eating. And it can be very small, by the way, because there are times when plants provide protein, but not all year. So I'm going to be very careful I'm going to be very grateful and I'm going to recognize that I'm going to be food one day, whether I'm eating meat or whether I'm eating a plant. And so much of these, these things that I talk about, these exotic invasives, this double standard, have to do with the species hierarchy. And this is one of the poisonous thoughts that fuels our culture that is much less, if not completely absent, in indigenous animus cultures that live sustainably upon the earth. They would look to the animals, the plants and animals, as teachers. They didn't feel like an evil was being done because they ate meat, because they respected the meat. They revered the meat, just like they did the plants. They wanted to take care of it. These, these creatures were their neighbors. So to just say, like, I'm going to turn away from meat isn't necessarily the solution. Although, turning away from the meat industry in our culture, I get that, because it's a horrible thing. But then again, so are the plants, the agricultural um, 
component of our culture. Like these big farm fields, if you're just eating plants, like look into what it takes to make a soybean field. You know, you're displacing a lot of homes. You're taking a, an area that once cared for a diverse array of creatures that had been there since the dawn of time. And these people just like destroy the habitat, grow one kind of food, turn it into a monoculture, or maybe, you know, it's a little bit less of a monoculture, but either way, now it's geared more towards human use. Um, to me, that's not, that's still a philosophy that I don't get behind. Yeah, I'll add, um, like I was saying, we were traveling through the arid uh, eastern part, I guess, of uh, Southern California and looking at what I think was a pomegranate orchard. And of course, this is on a mass scale. Um, they're having to divert water, take water from water beings and use the land specifically only for these trees, for these pomegranates to be grown. And then we find, you know, back in North Carolina, we find not only pomegranates, but the pomegranate juice in the dumpster. So it's not even, I mean, it's just, it's so out of balance to think that, oh, just because you're eating plants, you're not harming the earth. That's, that's completely false. And I don't want to drive all the vegetarians <laughs> away because I recognize that, uh, there are different ways to talk about this. If you're trying to fix our culture and live in a way that's better in our culture, you can make a really good argument for vegetarianism and veganism. Teresa and I... Um, I was a vegetarian for seven years. Yeah, when I met Teresa, she was a vegetarian. Um, we believe that this civilization needs to end. There's no way to fix it. Um, throwing Band-Aids on something on a war machine that's destroying the entire globe isn't going to work. And we believe that to completely abandon this culture, we need to change our mindset deeply. And that's where the, the rejection of species hierarchy comes from. Um, this is the world I want to get into is direct relating to the land and no need for our civilization. So, you know, I don't know, there's a certain hypocrisy that I recognize in ourselves because we eat meat and sometimes, you know, we buy it. And whenever I buy it, I know I'm contributing to something horrendous. So, you know, good on you, vegans. I, I recognize why you boycott that. But when I eat it out of the dumpster, um, I feel fine about that because whether it's plant or animal-based, if it's being wasted, I feel good about counteracting that waste. And, um, you know, when you leave this culture, hunter-gatherers, like you, you've become a hunter-gatherer of some kind. There might be some agriculture involved, but kind of your staple, your bottom bottom, uh, what would I say, foundation for that is the hunter-gatherer lifestyle. I've heard that 80% of a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, a hunter-gatherer's diet, is eating plants, gathering. Um, only 20% is meat. So in our culture, it's not just that we eat meat, but we eat too much of it. Um, this is not the natural balance that our bodies were designed for. Hence so all the clogged arteries and trips to the doctor and medicines to keep us going a little bit longer. But a recognition why this hunter-gatherer lifestyle, and keep in mind, we're talking about the people that, like, revered life, that had ceremony upon ceremony, that, you know, this honorable harvest I'm talking about comes from the Potawatomi Nation. Indigenous people, all this is coming from indigenous people, and what we see over and over again is not a rejection of eating meat, it's a way to eat meat, so much different from ours. Mm -hmm. So these hunter-gatherers, they recognized without having industrial civilization, without having totalitarian agriculture, they needed protein. And they wouldn't be here if they just relied completely on the plants to provide them with that, because that is imposing their will on nature. You look at what nature provides, and the way to live 
is sometimes what nature's providing is a rabbit or a squirrel or a deer. And you need that protein. Um, there are some plants that provide protein. Like I said, in the autumn, wow, the list gets long. That's a time to really, like, it can be uh, labor-consuming, but it's worth it. Acorns, um, it takes a lot of work to boil them and to take the shells off and then to boil them and dump out the water, boil them, dump out the water, boil them, dump out the water. Um, yeah. Uh, oh, were you saying you wanted to talk more about that later? No. Well, I mean, I was just opening the notebook up so you could see your list of... Okay. Yeah. And beech nuts, acorns, walnuts, pecans, and the acorns, after all the boiling, then you got to spread them out and dry them, which can be really tricky because you got to do that well. Otherwise it gets moldy and store it. But it's worth all the work because you've got this plant source of protein. You didn't have to kill an animal for this. And you didn't have to kill the plant either. You just kind of cash in on like what the squirrels are cashing in on. You go in there and you gather what you can. And um, yeah, you can make all kinds of stuff. Pancakes, cookies. I've had lots of stuff. Bread made from acorns. Um, hickory nuts. You crush them up and boil them and make milk. You know, Nut milk. Nut milk. Yeah. <laughs> I always grin when I say that. Um Beech nuts, and again, these are all like on a mast year. You know, there are certain years that you're going to have a hard time finding this stuff. And I hear people say, you know, I like this kind of hickory nut or that kind of hickory nut. I use all of them, and I haven't really noticed a, a huge difference. I like all of them. Um, they do have a subtle, subtle difference. Um, jewelweed seeds is a rare, like, you know, in the well, jewelweed's not rare, but <laughs> the time of year when it goes to seed, these little like exploding seeds that you can put your hand around. We've got a video on this too that I'm showing you how to do it. But you can take those seeds and they taste like little green beans and um, they got protein. And lamb's quarters, um, I have not used, I guess you said it was the seed? Yeah. Yeah, I've not used lamb's quarter seeds, but apparently that's another source of protein. So there are you know, it's really good to know the sources of protein because your body needs protein. As I've said before, um, I was taught plants keep you healthy, protein keeps you alive. And if you don't believe that, go test it. I know so many people who aren't willing to test their theories. <laughs> if you think that you don't need protein or that you can find it in the woods in a natural setting of what the earth offers without you forcing its hand, go in the woods and try it. Um, and if you find that I'm wrong, please contact me because I am not trying to pretend like I know everything. I'm speaking from my level of experience and it is an ongoing process. Um, so yeah, I guess we're going to finish up here. Yeah, we'll do a part two. Um, so be on the lookout for foraging part two and I'll put some more of the videos that we've talked about on our Facebook page, Escaping Society. And tell us what you think about our podcast. Um, we've been meaning to say this for a while, but you can review the podcast. So hopefully, And we'll, please review it. Yeah, please, um, especially if you like the podcast. But we definitely want to hear from you. And if you're um, not wanting to review specifically the podcast, but you want to like talk to us about a subject that you're interested in or have experience with, or just have any suggestions for us, you can contact us on our website, and that is www.escapingsociety.weebly.com. And that's all I've got. Anything else? No, I just encourage you, like, uh, our next episode is going to be Foraging, Hobo's Garden of Eaton Part 2. Please tune in for that, because we've got a long list, and uh, we've got a lot of really cool stuff to cover to round out this episode. So hopefully we'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye.